Welcome to the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show, a show specifically for the happy warrior. A show in which not only were no animals harmed in the production of, but no electrons were harmed. No trees were chopped down. Yes, this indeed is a sanitized Rabbi Daniel Lappin show, especially for people who either aspire to be happy warriors or who are happy warriors. Because one thing about happy warriors is they are not. They are not tennis balls floating down the gutter of life. Happy warriors are not people who want to be massaged with warm butter. But happy warriors are people who delight in the challenges of life. Happy warriors are people who bounce out of bed every morning eager to tackle the work of the day. Happy warriors are people who realize that happiness is not a passive state of mind, but it is an active decision. It is a purposeful and deliberate determination. I am a happy warrior. I am happy to be alive. I am happy to be able to confront the struggles of life and deal with them, because you have to remember Pain in life is inevitable. Suffering is optional. Pain is just the dealing with life. If you are a runner, pain is what you feel round about the start of the third mile. Suffering is what happens when you don't do anything about it. Pain is getting a flat tire while you're driving to a meeting. Suffering is either trying to drive on the rim or sitting there in the car wondering what you're going to do. But when you jump out of the car and change the tire, or when you call for help and somebody comes to help you, that is alleviating suffering. Suffering is optional. Pain is part of the pleasure of life. And no, I'm not masochistic in any way at all. It's just that I relish the feeling in my muscles after a workout. I feel the pain because I remember the great Jack Lane said, no pain, no gain. And so the happy warrior confronts the pain, but makes sure it never turns into suffering. The happy warrior moves ahead forward, eager and confident in his or her ability to confront the challenges of life ahead. Even when sometimes the pain is caused by unbelievably asinine and moronic statements, even when they come from somebody who has been elevated on high. Back five and a half years ago, in Janu- on January the 20th, 2015, the president, the then president of the United States of America, at the start of early in his second term, no, middle of his second term, uh, Barack Hussein Obama, said the following during the State of the Union speech on Capitol Hill. No challenge, no challenge poses a greater threat to future generations than climate change. That's right, President Obama said no challenge, no challenge at all poses a greater threat to future generations than climate change. And I am here as your rabbi, Rabbi Daniel Appen, reminding you that the more that things change, the more we need to depend upon those things that never change. 
and silliness and foolishness from highly placed individuals is something that never changes. However, let's give him credit. I will give him two words out of three. I don't think that climate change is anywhere near posing the greatest threat to future generations over anything else. I think the statement is, is truly moronic. But I will say that cultural climate change may well be the biggest threat facing future generations. Children coming of age and looking forward to being able to live in peace and prosperity, they are not being threatened by climate change, I assure you, but they are being threatened by cultural climate change in, in a very, very serious way. So um, climate change, nah, I don't think so. You've got to remember that uh, just a few years ago, they didn't use climate change. The term was global warming. Now, now today, that's an anachronistic term, right? Because nobody, nobody uses that term global warming that was created to uh, stimulate popular panic by, supposed, by talking about a world supposedly heating up very quickly. But um, the term global warming did not account for the rather inconvenient truth that there has been negligible global temperature change since 1998, 22 years. So rather than modifying the phrase to suspected global warming, possible global warming, um, they came up with the term climate change and it was designed to replace global warming. That way, new realities could emerge to serve the same political purpose. Changes of all sorts historic snowfalls, record cold, California drought, California wildfires, Australia wildfires, all could be lumped together, supposedly caused by man-made carbon emissions. Volatile weather, tornadoes, tsunamis, hurricanes, uh, was suddenly rebranded as climate chaos. And all of this is caused by Western industry and consumer lifestyles. So these things that used to be perfectly normal occurrences and always happened and always will are all of a sudden things for which you have to reduce your lifestyle, make your life indescribably more expensive and more uncomfortable, regardless of what China, India, and other places around the world do. But you, as an evil Westerner, your responsibility is to solve the problem of climate change. Well, let's dismiss that as the childish, frivolous foolishness that it is, and let's focus on the real danger, cultural climate change. That's right, significant changes in the culture. And now that really, really does impact us because the culture is really directly what impacts people's lives. And so you just think about it, right? Let me describe two women. On the surface of it, very similar. First woman has seven children. Second woman has seven children. They probably only live a mile apart from each other in, in many American cities and other places around the world. But here's the thing. The first woman who has seven children 
has seven children from seven different men, none of whom she was married to, and uh, those children are being raised by television, by a, by a succession of live-in boyfriends, um, notably the most dangerous conditions in which a child can live, and that is, right, that is an official figure, uh, an official statistic that the most dangerous place for a child is in a home with mom and her boyfriend. Uh, but that's a cultural thing, see? Nobody forced that on that woman. That was a decision she made, and the men who impregnated her made the decision to do what they were doing and to uh, abandon and move on. Now, just about a mile away lives another woman with seven children. Now, this woman is a uh, religious woman. She might be a religious Catholic. She might be a religious Jew. She might be a, a anything, right? But her, she and her husband uh, have been married since before the birth of the first child, probably since before the conception of the first child, and they've remained married. And the two of them are absolutely committed to one another in their marriage, and they are committed to those children they've given birth to, and maybe she's even adopted some children. But there is a complete commitment, and, and that mother and that father, dedicated to one another, knowing full well that the beauty and passion and commitment of their marriage is one of the greatest gifts they can give their children, because one of the most certain indicators of divorce is a person raised in a divorced home. So, uh, she and her husband bestow upon their children a beautiful gift of a loving, stable, beautiful marriage, and they educate those children. They educate them in terms of obligations, not in terms of rights, but in terms of obligations. They raise them to have self-discipline and willpower. And now I ask you, take any one of those seven children and now let's look at any one of the seven children of mother number one, each of whom was conceived by a different man. And in most cases, these children actually do not know who those men really were. As a matter of fact, being raised by this particular single mom, they are probably being raised to consider men to be toxic, vile creatures. Now, I ask you, take any one of those seven children do you think they have the same shot at a life of happiness, fulfillment, peace, tranquility, and prosperity as any one of the children from the other uh, couple I told, from the other woman I told you about, married to a husband in a long time, stable marriage? Now, what has changed? Is it some institutional evil? Is it some systemic evil? Is it some widespread evil that causes these people to have a fairly hopeless shot at life? Or is it the culture, their culture? And I don't think it's hard for anybody who's really honest to acknowledge that it's not any form of externalism that's causing this problem because it afflicts people of every color. It afflicts people in different countries. I've spoken before of how familiar I am with uh, cultural dysfunction in much of England, 
and what I'm talking about exists exactly the same in England as it does in the United States of America. It's nothing external, my friends. It's lifestyle choices based on a deeply implanted culture that uh, causes these seven children to have almost no chance of a successful future. You say, well, it's government's job to make everybody equal. Government's job is to make sure that those seven children have exactly the same shot as the other seven at a future life of happiness. That is ridiculous and, um, and makes as much sense as it does for me to say that the government has the responsibility of making sure that I have as much chance of being hired as a swimsuit model as somebody else who actually is hired as a swimsuit model. It's the government's responsibility to make sure that I get a job dancing in a choreographic routine of a Broadway show as anybody else does. And you might say, well, you're not a child, but it's the government's job to make sure that every child has the same shot as every other child? And the answer is no. Some children win the ovarian lottery and they grow up to be very good looking. Other children win an ovarian lottery and they are just natural dancers. They're beautiful dancers. And not everybody has that. And it makes as much sense to be able to say that the government should overturn the results of that ovarian lottery, as it makes sense to say that the government has the responsibility of making sure that the seven children of woman number one have the same shot in life as the seven children of woman number two. It's not doable. For instance, when these children reach school, one of the factors in success in school is not how much money the teachers are paid. It's not even how many children are in the class. It's not even how effective the teachers' union is, believe it or not. It is a question of whether the home atmosphere supports homework. It's whether the parents read to the child at a young age. Television doesn't do it. Please believe me on that. There's a huge difference between a child sitting on its mother's lap and looking at a book and helping to turn the pages as the mother reads to the toddler, as opposed to another toddler who's plonked down in a filthy and badly kept room in front of a, te a noisy television set blaring. It's ridiculous to say that those two children have the same shot at life. It isn't going to happen. Um, children of mother number two are raised to defer gratification. That's part of growing up in a functional family. You learn that you don't get exactly what you want now. And you learn that when you're one and two and three and four years old. And so when those children grow up, do you think they are going to be more likely or less likely to save and invest rather than to spend and consume. Children of mother number one do not learn deferment of gratification. As a matter of fact, they are very much focused on getting what they want right now. 
who do you think is more likely in grown life to be able to save money and invest it rather than just consume it and spend it? Children of mother number two, they learn that violence is not acceptable very early, right? When uh, brother pushes brother, brother pushes sister, sister pulls hair of brother, uh, that gets stopped very early. And so violence, which is a perfectly natural and normal human response, is tamped down because so is relieving yourself whenever you feel like it, a perfectly natural and normal human response, but it's something that is uh, uh, not helpful for civilized human society. And so in the same way, children of mother number two learn that as natural as violence might be, it's not practiced. And uh, children of mother number one practice violence, they actually see it. Sometimes they are the victims of it from mother's boyfriend. And there it goes. The pattern is predictable. It's true in America. It's true in England. It's becoming true in other countries in Europe. And it's true in other places around the world as well. There are two different types, uh, two different ways of organizing human society. And one of them is based on a culture that produces chaos and hopelessness, and the other is based on a culture that produces stable, functional families and durable relationships and citizens who are an asset to the countries in which they live. This is perhaps uh, best captured by um, the idea of... Jerusalem versus Athens. Why do I say that? Well, because it so happens that uh, Winston Churchill wrote in his uh, history of the Second World War, he wrote that no two cities have had a greater impact on the world than Jerusalem and Athens. And he was quite right to say that. What he didn't speak about, because it wasn't relevant to what he was discussing, although I'm sure he probably knew about it, is that uh, Jerusalem and Athens are actually at odds with one another. Jerusalem and Athens provide two opposing and utterly incompatible views of human beings and the societies in which they live. As a matter of fact, I think it's safe to say that uh, woman number one and her seven undisciplined children in their chaotic house are representatives of Athens, while family number two is representative of Jerusalem. Family number two uses as its guide to reality a book called the Bible, whereas family number one, excuse me, I'm falling into the trap of the New York Times. I remember a few years ago when the New York Times made a policy and editorial decision that any group of people living together constitute the word family. I remember when that happened. 
And what they then were able to do, and the reason I believe they did it, was in order to be able to say that children are at risk in families, that fathers often attack their children. Well, the truth is, of course, as everybody knows, that the very safest place for a child to be is in a home of its biological parents, the mother and father married to one another who conceived him and brought him into the world, or her, that is the most safe place for a child to be. The most dangerous, as I've said, of course, is mom and boyfriend. But the New York Times wanted to uh, make everything the same. And so they instituted the policy and a new editorial decision that all of these in new in New York Times stories are going to be referred to as families. And I, your rabbi, who should know so much better than that, you are right to castigate me for that terrible slipper. I should not have said family number one. It's woman number one. Well, her handbook of choice is a book called The Republic by a Greek philosopher by the name of Plato. Now, in all honesty, of course, woman number one has probably never heard of Plato or even the word philosophy. So, in real terms, she is not in any way using the handbook in the way that family number two or the family is using the Bible. It's not as if she keeps a copy of Plato's Republic in her rundown and badly dysfunctional house. She doesn't. But uh, the system that created her and the system of which she is now a part, believing deeply that none of this is her fault, um, that is the book of Plato's Republic, presenting two incompatible views of human society. The Bible describes the culture adopted by the family are described with seven children, whereas Plato's Republic um, speaks about, well, essentially, for convenience's sake, I'm going to say a socialistic world, um, a world in which government takes upon itself the power and function of a slave owner. Um, that's really what it does. It's, it's, it's taking on the responsibilities of providing employment. It's one of the reasons that the government uh, wants uh, teachers to be government employees and everyone in the medical profession to be a government employee because the ultimate dream is that the government is the ultimate employer. And so the biblical view that individuals are free to sort themselves out into employer and employed, while the government stands on the side ready in, in terms of the community interest to use its power and uh, ability um, to maintain uh, the free status of employer and employed uh, when inevitable disagreements arise. It's called having a court system, and it's why the founders of the United States of America uh, were so emphatic. It's also why the Bible speaks in terms of three uh, um, separate branches of government. That's right, back to the Bible again. Uh, if you are among the fortunate few who uh, own Rabbi Daniel Lappin's recommended Bible, available on my website at youneedarabbi.com, um, then you would turn to page 1285, 
And there in the book of Isaiah, chapter 33, verse 22, you're going to read, For the Lord is our judge, the Lord is our lawgiver, the Lord is our king. And that is what lay the foundation for the idea of dividing government into the king, the executive, the lawgiver, right, the lawgiver, the the Congress, and the judge, the judiciary. That's how it works. That's where it actually comes from. And it's in that um, framework of freedom that the family I describe live. Now, a lot of people think that socialism arose with the, um, uh, the, the evil and destructive dogma of Karl Marx, but that's simply not true. It goes back um, to the origins of humanity, and in the Bible, uh, Genesis chapter 9, the first 11 verses speak about the Tower of Babel. And if you are interested in knowing more about the spiritual origins of socialism and how it exerts such a fatal and seductive allure for the hearts of mankind, then you would go to my website and uh, take a look at a two-hour audio program called Tower of Power, Decoding the Secrets of Babel. comes with a a handbook, a guidebook that you'll be able to um, understand the Hebrew as well. But at any rate, over at uh, rabbidaniellappin.com, rabbidaniellappin.com, go to the store and look for Tower of Power, Decoding the Secrets of Babel. If you want to go back uh, to the origins of socialism and its powerful spiritual attraction. But uh, most people are unaware of that, and most people assume that socialism goes back way before Karl Marx, basically, to Plato's Republic. And, um, and, and there it is. He really lays it out. He was a central planner. That was his whole idea. And, uh, and, and Plato really laid out the blueprint for a communist economy, which is essentially part of this. It is the definition of the state. He also laid out the whole idea of the welfare state. And um, it's all, it is all there. And um, it's, 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 it's rather, it's rather nerve-wracking to realize that uh, decades and decades of school children and college children, university children, are raised on Plato as this sort of grand Greek design uh, for human living. That's what people are, are, have been taught for 50 years, at least in the United States and in the United Kingdom. So why should anybody be surprised that now children who were themselves raised in the households of people who bought into this idea conveyed by the universities that uh, Plato really is the guy we should follow for the perfect layout of human society, that all this freedom stuff just causes the oppression of the underclass. I mean, this stuff is is all laid out there. It's all very, very clear. But um, let's try and understand what the main distinctions are between Athens and Jerusalem. Okay, so Athens only perceives a world of physical reality. That's all there is. Jerusalem sees a world of spiritual reality as well. Now, there are very real implications here. 
for instance, the whole environmental movement springs from Athens in the sense that if you are living in a world that is only physical, then obviously there is shortage because physical things are in limited supply and physical things also do not last forever. All right, there was a certain amount of gold in the ground a thousand years ago, and there is considerably less gold in the ground now because a whole lot has been taken out. That's right. Time moves along, things change, and physical quantities tend to diminish or even die. They even they, they go away. And so um, we've got to understand that there are real-life consequences if you and your family and your neighborhood and your city and your society buy into Athens, then you automatically will also find yourself buying into a culture of shortage. And therefore, we must recycle. That's a sacred sacrament of the culture of Athens because we live in a world of shortage. But if you live in a culture of Jerusalem where the spiritual is as much a reality as the physical, well, then we understand that the true value comes from the creativity of human genius, and that's where it all finds its heart, and that everything flows from that culture. Wealth flows from the culture of Jerusalem, Poverty flows from the culture of Athens. Poverty for everyone except the rulers, that is. Plato, who was himself of the ruling class in Athens, made quite sure that in his system the rulers did quite well, and so it has been in every communist or socialist culture since then. Uh, The underclass has kept the underclass so that their dependence upon the state will never diminish whereas the uh, upper class. And so if you've wondered why in the United States of America you've seen so many cases of governors of states violating their own COVID lockdowns to eat at expensive restaurants or to experience expensive services, it makes perfect sense. They are actually, if not baffled, at least irritated by your indignation. How dare you not understand that the rulers are different. Plato laid this out very clearly in the Republic, a world in which only the physical was real. There was no spiritual. There's another part of that as well, and that is that if only the physical matters, and that means we really do live in a world of limitations, then you and your whole culture, and you may not know the reason, and you may not know anything about Plato, and you may not be conscious of how these ideas are implanted in your soul, but nonetheless, you will be agitated by the concept of shortage in the world because you are a child of Athens. But if you're a child of Jerusalem, uh, then you are taught the infinite. And, And by the way, you know, here you might find this interesting. And if any of you are utterly allergic uh, to the Bible, then um, go along and get yourself some coffee for the next three or four minutes while I show you how those people 
who subscribe to the culture of Jerusalem and for whom the textbook is not Plato's Republic, but God's Bible, well, they see something very differently. By the way, if you're neutral about the Bible, then you will find this interesting. In other words, you do not have to buy into my view that the Bible is divine. You don't have to buy into that. You'll nonetheless find it interesting that a book that has sat at the epicenter of Western civilization for 2,000 years has this rather interesting phenomenon, and that is the following. Um, In the English language, there is a letter frequency table, right? Everybody, uh, I think certainly if you ever played codes with your friends as a child, you probably know that the letter E is number one in the frequency table. If you take any typical passage in English, there will be way more E's than there will be Q's or Z's, right? You know that. As a matter of fact, there'll be way more E's than there are L's, M's, and N's. Many, many, many more. So you could actually... Uh, look at a passage, let's say you've got a letter written, not in English, but in symbols, where every symbol represents an English letter, and if the very first word is four symbols, uh, you might well guess it could be the word dear, and the second letter would be an E, and once you'd identified that, you could go and see the other E's, but you don't have to even do that. You could just check out the whole piece, find the symbol that appears more often than any other, put in an E, and you're on your way. And then we know which letters come next, right? S's come next, etc., etc., and you go down the list. And this works for the first four, five, six letters, uh, where the frequency table is really statistically very reliable. In the Lord's language, Hebrew, you will not be horrified to hear that this does not exist, and that pretty much all the letters are used all the time, and um, and for those of you who do have some knowledge of Hebrew, you might well say, well, wait a sec, uh, vavs and hays appear more frequently than others, and that is true, but never in roots. Those are the letters making up the Lord's name, and they do appear uh, as prefixes or suffixes or inserts in words for spiritual reasons, and if you have heard any of my Bible teachings, you'll be much more familiar with that. But... Uh, uh, the point I'm making is that in Hebrew, in, in a Hebrew text, pretty much all the letters show up around about the same time. So you wouldn't be surprised that uh, by the time we've gone through about 12 verses from in the beginning God created in Hebrew, Bereshit, bara Elohim, et you start off, by the time you reach about 12 verses, you've pretty much covered all the letters of the alphabet. And when you do another 12 verses, you know, all the letters are there. But here's the interesting thing. There's one letter missing. Now, the letter missing is uh, the, the letter in Hebrew shaped like an O. It doesn't read as an O. It reads like the letter S. It has an S sound, like sugar, uh, but it's shaped just like an O. It's a circle. And this particular letter doesn't show up in the first 12 verses. Now, here's the funny thing. Take any other 12 verses in the Bible, and all the letters will be there, including this letter. When we go another 12 verses to verse 24 in Genesis, we still have all the other letters many times. No um, letter, it's called the Samach, doesn't appear. Do another 12 verses, go to 32, 36 verses in, and still absolutely no appearance of this letter. Finally, 42 verses in, that's chapter 2, verse 11, and again, for you who have made a very, very worthwhile investment in a, a family heirloom Hebrew Bible. Uh, it's a beautiful Bible, and the reasons that I recommend this Bible are made clear 
at my website, rabbidaniellappin.com, where you can also get the uh, the Bible. And I am recording this um, in the uh, middle of November 2020. And I mention that only because I'm telling you that right now uh, we have only a few more of these Bibles in stock. We've ordered um, another supply, but it's going to be a couple of months before we have them. And uh, we just don't have an exact arrival date on that. But right now, we still have a few. And uh, if I were you, I'd get me and my family one of these right now at rabbidaniellappin.com. It's called Rabbi Daniel Lappin's Recommended Bible. And um, the reason it's convenient is because here on out, I'm going to be giving you page references in this Bible. And that way, for those of you who are actually interested, you can just dive right in and see what I'm talking about. So so here we go. Finally, we come to verse 11 in chapter 2. This is the very first time we see this round O-shaped letter. And if you look on the Hebrew side on page 6, and you count down 1, 2, 3, 4, 5, 6, 7 lines and you go to the sixth word on the line, uh, you will discover that the second letter is the letter I'm talking about. You'll see it's a round O-shaped letter, and you will see, even by careful examination, that this letter has never shown up before. Uh, In spite of the fact that from here on out, it shows up at the normal frequency of all other letters. Here's the beautiful thing. You won't be shocked to hear that this is the verse. Let me read the English for you that the verse that this letter appears in. That it is talking about four rivers coming out of Eden. It's, it says it is the one that encompasses encompasses the whole land of Havilah. That word compasses means surrounds. What could be more appropriate than that the very first appearance of a letter shaped like an O, whose shape screams out the idea of surround you can hear the word around right in there and it appears in the word that says surround in other words my friends uh you're gonna love this you're gonna love it this letter stands for confinement limitation limit in other words uh, if somebody you know draws a circle around you and says stay in that circle as children do in games um, then you are limited by that circle anytime there is an encirclement you are confined and so this letter has as its meaning consistently throughout all of scripture this, when this letter appears it signifies confinement so much so, by the way, and, and I'm not going to go deeply into this now, but later on, when um, expansion, expansiveness is being described as, um, uh, as growth and fertility are described later in the book of Deuteronomy, uh, the Bible goes to great lengths to avoid the use of this letter using bizarre words only there. Because you cannot use this letter when you're talking about limitlessness. And so the Bible shows that this letter speaking about limits and encirclement and confinement and restriction, this doesn't show up till way into the 42nd verse. Up till then, it's postponed in order that you should understand that those who shape their culture according to this book, namely the culture of Jerusalem versus Athens, this book, we don't recognize limit. There is no limitation. And sure enough, it's not a surprise that 
those who live according to the culture of Jerusalem do not teach their children about shortage and limitation and confinement. They teach their children about a world of opportunity and possibility and potential, and, op- and, and everything is an opportunity. Is it any wonder that the children of Jerusalem are more prosperous than the children of Athens? Of course it isn't. It makes perfect sense. In the Athens worldview, youth is worshipped. Age is viewed as just an unfortunate and best ignored episode. Youth is worshipped. Age a whole lot differently. Um, the, uh, in the Jerusalem scenario, you would look at an older couple sitting down maybe with four generations of their descendants. And if you were part of the Jerusalem culture, you'd see beauty. You'd see in their lined faces the years of love and sacrifice and accumulated wisdom and memories. And your response would be, how beautiful is that? But if you're part of Athens culture, you put a photograph of a vapid, self-indulgent, self-absorbed, and underdressed young woman on the cover of a magazine, and millions of Athenians genuflect as they pick it up at the newsstand. You know, Jerusalem used to be a sort of code word that meant God's blueprint for how people can best live. In the early 17th century, one of the people who came to settle North America, one of the pilgrims by the name of John Winthrop, he told those about to travel with him to America that they are going to this new land to be building a shining city upon a hill. And almost everybody in his audience would have realized that he meant a new Jerusalem in the new world. The old world, that is to say England, also knew that Jerusalem meant a godly and ideal way of life. William Blake was an English poet who wrote a poem you'd probably enjoy reading, and it was called The New Jerusalem. Let me read the closing lines. I will not cease from mental fight, nor shall my sword sleep in my hand, till we have built Jerusalem in England's green and pleasant land. Do you follow what I'm trying to convey to you? That we live today in an extraordinary moment in the last 2,000 years of human history, in that you have influential people and even people we regard as educated who literally do not know anything at all about the Bible. They literally do not know if Leviticus is an aftershave lotion or a book. They literally don't know that. But it wasn't always this way. Once upon a time, people knew what Jerusalem signified, and they knew what Athens signified. And so all I'm really doing is restoring your natural legacy. I'm telling you the things that your ancestors knew, and that is that the choice facing everybody all the time is, do you want to live in Athens or do you want to live in Jerusalem? Now, not every exponent of Jerusalem is a, a beautiful, noble, ideal person. I mean, even King David himself had flaws. It was part of the reason he wasn't able to be the one to build 
the temple. It was his son Solomon who did that. And Solomon was not without his flaws. Sometimes people who do great things for Jerusalem are flawed people, like we all are. And sometimes not everybody who builds Athens and not everybody who promotes and advocates for Athens is a horrible human being. Many times they are, but sometimes they're very nice people. But none of that matters because it's not whether the person himself is perfect or flawed. The issue is the culture. What is being promoted as the model for human living, Athens or Jerusalem? And you've got to say, is youth promoted or is age seen as venerable and valuable and an appreciation of wisdom? You see, the problem, if you are Athenian and you adhere to the physical view of reality, then you understand that you probably hit perfection at about the age of 18. (laughs) Would you agree? And then from then onwards, I'm sorry to tell you this, but from then onwards, it's pretty much downhill, <laughs> right? I mean, how, how, can, how can even a, uh, a man or a woman in good physical shape at the age of 52 compare to themselves at age, shall we say, 19? It doesn't work. It simply isn't how the world really works. But if you live in Jerusalem well, then the spiritual really matters. And so, yes, it's a bit sad that I'm not quite as good-looking as I was when I was 19, but it's okay because I have so many compensating advantages. I'm not nearly as dumb as I was when I was 19. I have acquired some wisdom. And in addition to that, I have built a family and I have built some finances, and all these things matter, not just the physical. That's if you live in Jerusalem. But if you live in Athens, well, then only the physical matters, and uh, you want to preserve that as long as possible with all kinds of expensive treatments in order to maintain the physical. As a matter of fact, one of the medications for preventing men from revealing their age by means of graying hair is a hair dye for men called appropriately Grecian formula. (laughs) How could it possibly have been more appropriate? It is the Athenian way. You try and preserve these things forever. You know, in the early 1800s, for a very short time, there lived a, another English poet. I spoke before about William Blake in New Jerusalem. This guy's name was John Keats, and um, he lived in the early 1800s, and uh, he wrote a poem called Ode on a Grecian Urn, and it captures so beautifully the Athenian culture that um, time mustn't pass. The, 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 the passage of time is a tragedy for an Athenian. Everything must sort of stay in the state of physical perfection in which it now is. And he uh, writes this beautiful poem about a Grecian urn in which there is a picture of a boy chasing a girl through the woods. And here's uh, a line uh, stands in the middle of the poem. Bold lover, never, never canst thou kiss, though winning near the goal, 
yet do not grieve, she cannot fade, though thou hast not thy bliss, for ever wilt thou love, and she be fair. She'll be beautiful forever. She'll be a cover model for a magazine forever. Now, there are disadvantages in that you'll never consummate your passion for her, but so what? At least you understand that this will all last forever. And then the poem ends in the, the best part of it, the, uh, the climax, the closing two lines of the poem. Listen to this carefully, because I want you to know how incredibly dangerously destructive this really is. Here are the closing lines of John Keats' Ode on a Grecian Urn. Beauty is truth. Truth is beauty. That's all. You know on earth, and, you know, I read that really badly. Let <laughs> me try it again. Beauty is truth. Truth, beauty. That is all you know on earth and all you need to know. Is that really true? Is beauty and truth absolutely interchangeable? Yes, if you are an Athenian, it really is. And that's why art is venerated no matter how disgusting it is much of modern art doesn't matter art is venerated and there is an entire culture with its own temples called art galleries all dedicated to this athenian culture beauty is truth truth beauty that's all you know on earth and all you need to know really you you never met any beautiful truly evil people really no not true at all but it is part of the culture of Athens. And um, how's about um, uh, the idea of um, uh, courage and cowardice? Yeah. Again, a physical view of reality based in Athens means that um, physical survival is more important than anything else. And therefore, cowardice is the way to go. Run from a fight. Doesn't matter. Live another day. But the idea of honor and shame, uh, the honor, the, the idea of standing up for a value. Now, a value is spiritual. So there are no such things as values in Athenian culture. And so cowardice is elevated to a, um, a moral goodness. They call it pacifism. We're against war. And they elevate their own failure by giving it new names. And that is, uh, whereas courage is very much an aspect of a Jerusalem Bible-based worldview. Um, another aspect of it is that, the, um, that Athens prefers sentiments to strategies, because sentiments are always beautiful. But in the real world, very often, in order to produce beauty, there involves a certain amount of struggle. There involves sometimes even a certain amount of ugliness. Yes. In other words, for um, in modern-day Israel, for the beauty of Jerusalem to stand on its hills today, many, many, many men have shed their blood. And that is true in the United States of America, where every Veterans Day, people gather to remember that the beauties of America are only there. You like national parks in America? Well, you can only go to them because so many people spilled their blood. You want to make a nice garden? Well, you have to dig up the weeds. And for those people who like weeds, it's a tragedy. And then you've got to throw down manure and it smells. Fertilizer smells. But the result is a rose bush at the end. 
Jerusalem recognizes that strategies are meaningful. Sentiments are nonsensical. There's no value to a sentiment. Oh, I think there should be a... Listen to a beauty pageant winner. I want to see an end to hunger. Very nice. That's a sentiment. Any ideas on how you're going to bring that about? Make sure you understand the difference between sentiments and strategies. Athens specializes in sentiments. Jerusalem insists on strategies. Um, Let me give you a uh, tweet from the woman who would be uh, vice president in a Biden America. On November 12th, 2020, uh, she tweeted the following. Please listen carefully to this. Here it comes. Hope, unity, decency, truth, These are the ideals that will guide a Biden-Harris administration. (laughs) Get it? Hope, unity. Do you remember President Obama's uh, hope and change? And everybody said, yeah, yeah, yeah. Everyone who subscribed to the world of Athens thought hope and change was a wonderful way for a new president to announce his plans for America. The people who live in Jerusalem... Americans who live in Jerusalem spiritually, uh, they shook their heads and said, sentiments, not strategies. That's not going to help at all. Athenians hate strategies. One of the reasons that they hated President Trump and still do is because he focused on strategies. He didn't know much about pretty sentiments. He actually specifically said what he would do, and they hated that because Athenians prefer sentiments to strategies. I should mention that George Orwell's genius book entitled 1984, written actually in the 1940s, um, was a brilliant exposition of how socialism gains power. And he, he actually speaks very eloquently about this concept, not in so many words, in ter- as I put it, in terms of, of sentiment versus strategy, but he shows how the minds of people are so easily influenced by pretty sentiments. So please, in your life, running your business, taking care of your family, interacting with friends, do not mistake sentiment for strategy. The two are very different, and the two are very, very important. Athens loves sentiment, and they all applaud, and they jump up and down with excitement, because everything is going to be so beautiful. It's all going to be about hope, and unity, and decency, and empathy, and truth. (laughs) Yeah, right, exactly. And um, we're going to follow science. Yeah, That's right. And I've spoken about this before. If you are an Athenian and you live in a world that is only physical in nature, then nothing is more important than physical survival. And therefore, the world of public health is paramount. And that means that when public health experts speak, the rest of us have to genuflect and obey. But uh, if you live in Jerusalem, then the quality of life involves spiritual realities as well and part of that is human interaction and automatically we of jerusalem know that 
economic prosperity results only from interaction of human beings. The only time money is brought into existence is when one human being serves another human being, either by providing him with goods or with services. And that's when wealth is created. When we are reduced in our ability to do that by an Athenian tyranny, well, then don't be surprised if economic reduction is an automatic consequence. It has to be. That's part of the difference and the incompatibility between Jerusalem and Athens. Another part of uh, Athens, which uh, Plato is very strong on in the Republic, is the idea of internationalism. Nationalism is a bad word among Athenians, but it's a wonderful word among Jerusalemites. It doesn't mean that we hate other nations. It's that we accord them the respect of national sovereignty. You are your nation. I am my nation. We've got our way of running our society and our lives. You have your way, and we're happy to proceed on that basis. We're pretty confident that ours will produce the superior nation. But when people come to us and say, well, you're different from other nations, Jerusalemites say, yep, you're right about that, I'll say. But uh, Athenians say, what? We're causing separation between nations. It's the worst possible thing. We believe in internationalism. And uh, here is one of the most beautiful uh, pieces of evidence. And, you know, I'm, I'm always assuming that there are some people listening to my voice right now who are rolling their eyes and saying, I can't believe this. Uh, this, is, you know, this is too simplistic, that the world... The, the culture conflict in humanity today is between Athens and Jerusalem, and Athens pushes internationalism while Jerusalem pushes nationalism. Well, that's exactly true. It's not an accident that the song of communism was called the Internationale, and it's not an accident that a guy who is already appointed to Joe Biden's future in his mind um, uh, board of national health is a guy called Ezekiel Emanuel, who's a brother of Rahm Emanuel, who was one of the architects of the Obama administration. So Ezekiel Emanuel has uh, written an article called An Ethical Framework for Global Vaccine Allocation. You hear that? So America is expending billions of dollars, which had to come from hardworking American citizens who paid often confiscatory rates of taxation, um, and Ezekiel Emanuel says, you might have thought, right, you might have thought that since America developed the vaccine, well, then we should make sure all Americans get it. We're talking about COVID-19, by the way, if you happen to be listening a little bit down the road. And I now have to tell you what uh, the article Scientific American, if you're interested, an, a magazine which has really deteriorated and fallen down the abyss of uh, poor journalism because it's become a voice piece for Athens instead of a voice piece just for science. And um, here's what oncologist Dr. Zeke Emanuel, one of 10 advisory board members named to Democratic President-elect Joe Biden's coronavirus task force. Um, he has pushed the United States not to hoard a coronavirus. Um, here's what one of the key architects of the Obamacare Medical Act in the Obama administration has uh, written. He said, 
he wants everybody to follow in America a fair priority model, which calls for a fair international distribution of vaccine rather than what he calls vaccine nationalism. You get that? Now, is it any wonder to you that uh, the Rosenbergs, there were a couple who were uh, deeply committed socialists um, at the time of World War II, as America uh, discovered the atom bomb, do you think that that should have been distributed to all nations on Earth? No. The world did much better by America trying to keep the atom bomb for itself. It was also better for Americans. But the Rosenbergs, because they were Athenians, they took it and handed the secrets of the bomb over to Joseph Stalin in the Soviet Union, and very quickly Russia joined America in the nuclear club. That was not good for the world. That resulted in decades of the Cold War. Okay? You've got to ask yourself, uh, in what sort of world would you be more comfortable when Iran has the bomb or Canada has the bomb? There's a difference between Iran and Canada because we recognize nations exist and nations are different. And it is good that we live in a world of different nations. But Athens believes only in the international model, all the same. And in the same way as the traders, Rosenberg, Carl, Ethel and um, Julius Rosenberg, uh, they decided that it's not right for America to hoard nuclear secrets, and they distributed it. Ezekiel Emanuel says, hey, even if many Americans die, it would still be wrong to hoard it in a form of what he called vaccine nationalism. Uh, the, the, uh, the, yes, some Americans will die, but it's more correct, it's fairer, it's appropriate to distribute the vaccine internationally. So it should remain equal because Athens believes in equality and Jerusalem believes in freedom. Uh, these are very, very major differences. Athens believes in the sanctity of government and in government education. And Jerusalemites in the United States of America, at any rate, in a fatal and fateful decision, going back more than 50 years, uh, decided to hand over education in America to Athens. And so for more than 50 years, children growing into adults have been educated by Athenians. And no surprise, now year 2020, they're doing everything they can to turn America into a, an Athenian model instead of a Jerusalem model. That is what has happened because Athens venerates government and universities. Not surprisingly, universities are really the home of Greek Athenian thinking. It's one of the reasons that in some of the great universities in America, the main building is built to resemble the Parthenon on the Acropolis in Athens. And it's why something called the Greek system is set up in universities where people are part of houses that are given Greek letter names, all because in a way that may be a lot less known to most people today, but once upon a time was clearly understood. Athens stands for a very specific set of values that I am endeavoring to impart to you today. So not surprisingly, universities as the place where government perpetuates its worldview are venerated. 
but Jerusalem venerates the home and the family. It could not be more different. And so, yes, all of these aspects of Jerusalem and Athens are what shape exactly what's going on in the culture today, whether it's Jerusalem and Athens in America or Jerusalem and Athens in the United Kingdom. Consider, for example, the whole Brexit controversy. The whole controversy was whether England should remain part of the economic union of Europe or whether they should be their own nation. And for people who believed in Jerusalem in the United Kingdom, they said, it's enough we've handed over sovereignty to Brussels. A United Nations of Europe has the power to decide what sort of light bulbs we can put in our homes and what sort of shower heads must be in our bathrooms. Yes, just like America. And so Britons, ordinary Britons, and I say ordinary because they are usually not the so-called ruling elite because Plato made clear that the ruling elite, his crowd, would have the power. But the ordinary Jerusalemites in England said, you know, enough of that, and we want out of uh, the EU. And so they called it the Brexit movement. And the ruling class in England was outraged and highly indignant that people couldn't understand how important it was to do away with nationalism. And we should all be one united nations. Yes, that's one of the reasons. Athenians love the United Nations. They have an almost childlike faith in the UN, in the United Nations. And uh, Jerusalemites, we Jerusalemites know full well what a complete and utter farce is the expensive and totally unnecessary organization known as the United Nations. They couldn't even do the coronavirus right. Uh, The World Health Organization made a complete mess of that as well. Any attempt to do away with nationalism, to do away with nations, to try and turn nationalism into a bad word, that's part of Athens. you got to recognize it. But Jerusalem, well, Jerusalem gets it right. Now, I should definitely mention that um, this is very much on my mind because at the time I'm recording this, we happen to be just a couple of weeks out from the Festival of Lights called Hanukkah. And uh, it is a time of the year when we Hebrews focus very much on the gap between Jerusalem and Athens, between the incompatible and opposing moral visions of Jerusalem and Athens, the incompatible and uh, opposing views of human beings and human society, all of that very much a part of Hanukkah. And... um, we created a very beautiful, very condensed and packed audio teaching program called Festival of Lights. Transform your 24-7 existence into a 25-8 life. Right, 24-7, 25-8. When you hear the program, you'll understand the significance. But uh, it's called Festival of Lights. Transform your 24-7 existence into a 25-8 life. And uh, you want to get hold of it. It's, uh, it's, it's very inexpensive, the cost of a cup of coffee. 
<laughs> if you go to a certain unnamed coffee outlet that has yet to become a sponsor of this program, hence I will not name their name. But uh, if you do go over to rabbidaniellappin.com, you will be able to see not only Rabbi Daniel Lappin's recommended Bible, but you'll be able to download right now, here and now, uh, with no delay, uh, the audio program called Festival of Lights, Transform Your 24-7 Existence into a 25-8 Life. And you will not be sorry, it will open your eyes, um, even beyond, way beyond what I have covered in today's episode of the Rabbi Daniel Lappin Show. So my friends, I appreciate you being part of the show and thank you so much for sharing news on the show. Uh, just just before I prepared the show, got an email from Zeke in Malaysia, listens to the show regularly over there in Malaysia. Zeke, thanks for writing. And uh, again, over at RabbiDanielLappin.com, not only will you see the Bible, Rabbi Daniel Lappin's recommended Bible, not only will you see the audio program Festival of Lights transform your 24-7 existence into a 25-8 life, you will also be able to send me a communication or Mrs. Lappin. We usually read them together. We love hearing from you all. And many of you have discovered that, uh, yes, indeed, we do respond to as many as we possibly can. Now, uh, we tend to respond a little bit more nowadays at our special site, especially for you listeners to the podcast. It's called wehappywarriors.com. That's right. Well, you understand my relationship uh, with each and every one of you happy warriors or aspiring happy warriors. And so that's why we have a website called We Happy Warriors. That's exactly what it is. So, um, again, uh, comments to us there at We Happy Warriors um, also get very uh, speedy response from both Susan Lappin and me. So when you have a chance, do drop by www.com wehappywarriors.com. It's a club for all of us happy warriors. And um, you'll be able to hear from us over there. When you do, by the way, you'll also be able to download our newest book called The Holistic You. Very, very important. Okay, important stuff. Basically, uh, how each and every part of the five parts of your life, your faith, your friendships, your family, your finances, and your physical fitness, how all of those five parts of your life interact with one another and impact one another. And so, yes, if things are not going great on the social friendship level, okay, then maybe you need to be aware of something on who knows, your fitness level or your financial level, if things aren't going well on your family front, your romantic front, who knows, you may be not realizing the holistic you. You may not be realizing that you are one integrated entity. That's how the good Lord created us. All of that over at wehappywarriors.com. So life's got a little more complicated, hasn't it? I've now got to tell you about not just one website of RabbiDanielAppin.com. I've got to tell you about the second one, WeHappyWarriors.com. But especially in these days when building connections is more difficult and uh, more important than ever, uh, we are feeling our way into better ways in order for us to remain in touch with those people who are most important to us, and that is you 
happy warriors. So until next week, when I once again look forward to the privilege of spending a little more time together with you, I wish you a week of very good times, good times with your family, good times with your faith, good times with your friendships, good times with your finances, and good times with your fitness. I'm Rabbi Daniel Lappin. God bless.